Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I haven't been here since before the pandemic, as we say. Um, and it's nice to see some of you on the screen. Uh, Linda, hi, Linda. Hi, Barbara Reese. Hi, others, <laughs> familiar faces. And hi, all of you in the room. So, uh, I've just come from, I had the good fortune to be at a Rohatsu Seshin in Mexico at a place called Mar de Hade uh, with the Everyday Zen Sangha with Norman Fisher and Kathy Fisher. Uh, it was wonderful. So, and I just got back the day before yesterday, so I'm still getting used to the change in temperature, among other things. It was just very warm and by the sea and the sound of the surf and the waves marking the time of our sitting. And now I'm here in Sacramento. And uh, my topic tonight, I want to talk about time. And, and I have a, a talk planned, but I'm also hoping to save a little time at the end to do a very short reading of an excerpt or two from my new book that Jim mentioned, Alive Until You're Dead. So we'll see if, if that fits. Uh, so on the subject of time, it's very closely related to our Buddhist practice. And as we know, one of the three marks of existence is impermanence, which is all, all about time passing. And time is just a very, very mysterious subject and something I've been thinking about a lot all my life. I've been kind of wondering about it and curious about it. What is it anyway? And I've been thinking about it extra much lately because I just turned 80, which seems kind of unimaginable to me. I, um, you know, what, what happened here? I was, I'm, I'm a tree climber and a cartwheeler and the inventor of the founder of the Robin Hood Club in fifth grade. So I don't know how I got to be an 80 year old woman, but so it seems um, to have happened. I, I knew it would happen sometime in the future, these things, if I lived, but, and I kind of accepted the fact that it would happen. But when it did happen, I realized that I accepted it as long as it was in the future. That was what I accepted. <laughs> I think that was why it was acceptable, because it was in the future. <laughs> anyway, but the future turns into the present. So here we are. Um, and it's not so bad. It's just a hard thing to realize how time goes by the way it does. And where does it go? And what happened to all the time in between the cartwheels and now? Um, so this mystery is is really something I enjoy contemplating and exploring and investigating. And I have been doing that and thinking about it. And so uh, as I now realize I'm really approaching the end of my life and I don't have that much more time ahead of me, it becomes an even more interesting, I won't say urgent, but more interesting 
question. Um, so it seems like a very important question and time seems to be a huge subject that includes everything. Everything is inside of time in some way. Here's a surprising fact that I recently learned. The most commonly used noun in the English language is the word time, which is surprising. I thought it would be some more homey thing like, um, I don't know, car or bread or, or mother or love or something more personal, but time. And when we think about it, we are using the expressions with time all the time. I don't have all the time. I don't have time. I'm sorry. I, I, um, and, and now it's, it's time to go. It's time for bed. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of expressions, uh, idiomatic expressions and proverbs and things with time in them. Time and tide, wait for no person. Um, you could say. Uh, so, uh, time is of the essence. Uh, a phrase I like a lot is uh, the time of your life. And, and tonight I want to persuade you that we are all having the time of our life all the time. Right now, at this very moment, this is the time of our life we're having. So, that's pretty pretty great. Let's just keep on having the time of our life, because that's what it is. I came here on the train, and riding the Capitol Corridor is one of my most favorite things to do in life. And especially when I came, it was late afternoon, and so it was the long shadows and the low sun lighting the hills and the marshes and the old CNH sugar factory. It's just such a great journey between Berkeley and Sacramento on the train. And I know the view from the west side and I know the view from the east side and I decide which side of the train I want to sit on. And, um, and it's also, there's something about time when you're riding on a train and you're seeing the landscape go by. You're traveling through space, but it's also as if you're traveling through time. And so uh, what's behind you seems to be in the past. I've passed the CNH sugar factory, okay? So that's in the past. And I haven't come yet to, to the Yolo wetlands. So that's in the future. Uh, and my, it's kind of like, my life as if I'm traveling across the country in my life is a journey across the country and, and I can only see the part that's out the window right now. The present time is what's right out the window. Uh, and the past is what's gone before. But actually, it's all there. All of that landscape is there right now. It's just that I can only see a little piece of it. And I think that's kind of how it is with our lives too, that it's all there, what we think of as the past and the future, and but we can only see a little piece of it in one time, but it doesn't mean that it, it's not there in some other way, it is there. Everything's all there at the same time. Um, 
well, but there's another expression that I like a lot that is a kind of definition of time that a friend of mine told me, which is that time is nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. So that's a good explanation of why we have to have time. Um, so this kind of relates to a quote from our beloved Zen master Dogen, who some of you may know his piece called Uji, or Time Being, which is about time. He's writing about time, and it's quite a challenging short piece that was given as a talk originally and written down. But one of the things he says there is, each moment is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. Which somehow goes with what I was trying to say about the train, that it's all here now. Everything is included. We have the habit of thinking of time as a straight line that we're traveling along uh, from the beginning point to the end point and the beginning, like our birth back there and our death over there. And we're just going along this line. Uh, and, but we can kind of get stuck in linear time when we're thinking of it that way. And what if this isn't really what's happening at all? What if all this way of measuring time is really an illusion? We, we lose the present moment as we're thinking about the past and we're thinking about the future. When we do that, we lose this moment that we're in. And as many wise sages keep telling us, the present moment is the only moment that we have. Another quote from Dogen, from the same piece, Uji, this, in speaking of time, this is eight centuries ago, but very timely. He says, do not think that time merely flies away if time merely flies away, you would be separated from time. And he also said, the self is time. So, and this is me talking, you can't be separated from time if it's yourself. If the self is time, how can you be separated from time? There isn't such a thing as time, really. Uh, or in another sense, we are time. We're made of time. That's what we are. Time is us. And there's, it's not a thing. It's not, we say, I don't have enough time. Or, um, but time isn't something you have. So to say, I don't have enough time is like the ocean saying, I don't have enough water. Uh, it, it's not a thing. And we talk about spending time and saving time. But time is not something you can save. Where would you put it? You, you can't put it in the bank and take it out later. It's the self is time. We're made out of time. And without time, we couldn't even be here. You would have no dimension, dimensionality if you didn't have time to exist in. You couldn't breathe. You wouldn't be. Being itself happens in time. And all of us are being in time together in this present moment. So we're making time together. 
we do measure time though. We need to measure time and we do measure time and we measure it in seconds and minutes and days and hours and days and weeks and months and years. And there actually are, we, we use all these time measurements, but there are two kinds of time measurements that I just listed. There's two kinds in this list. Uh, although we have mostly forgotten about the distinction between them, some of those time durations are completely natural and some of them are invented by human beings. Like the day, the lunar month, the year, those are natural cycles. The day is not invented by humans. It was here a long time before humans were invented by the earth going around its axis for millions and millions of years before we ever arrived to call it a day. And the same with the year, the same with the lunar month. Uh, so, and these, these time periods are also cyclical. They're not linear. They come around and around again and again, which is a very different thing from linear, putting everything into a straight line. They're, they're kind of woven into the workings of the universe itself, these kinds of cycles. And there are larger cycles in the universe that I'm not mentioning that I don't even understand about, but astronomers do of different constellations coming around in different sequences in cyclical patterns. So uh, it's woven into the stars. And then closer to us on this earth, our lives are kind of integrated with these natural cycles or the lives of living beings are regulated often by these natural cycles. And uh, for example, I, I was reading about different things. I was curious, well, what, what kinds of things does the moon regulate? It certainly regulates the tides, we know that, and the tides affect the lives and the, uh, of little creatures who live in the tidal areas. And, and when the birds come to eat which kinds of little bugs come out in the middle of the low tide and the high tide and all of this. So our, our, the cycles of our own lives are affected. But just a small example is that um, there's a plant called Mormon tea and it's pollinated exclusively by nocturnal insect, insects who are attracted to the Mormon tea plant only on the nights when the moon is full or almost full because the light from the moon at night shines on this particular plant. There's something on the plant that reflects the bright moonlight very strongly and the insect is attracted to the plant at that time to pollinate it. So without the full moon, the, the plant doesn't get pollinated. So most living things are in some way, their lives are regulated according to these natural rhythms and we humans are diurnal by and large, although our technology now makes us less so as we can kind of have light and warmth all night long through our technology, but we're still essentially diurnal daytime beings. But the minutes and the hours and the weeks are different, even though they look the same on our calendar. 
when we're looking at the writing, we don't think, oh, a day is completely different from a week because one's natural and one's not. No, but we did invent these things and they're arbitrary. They're not preordained, which we kind of forget. Same with hours and seconds. Those are invented sequences that an hour could have a different name and it could be two thirds as long. You know, why should it be that long? And why? So we, we just divided a day into a certain number of parts and that's how it got to be that size. Um, but there's no living creature that regulates its bodily system according to the hour or according to the week. There's no, no bear comes out of its cave only on Wednesdays. So um, there's something, it's good to notice those things and to remember that we, we are also making these inventions ourselves to kind of chop time up in a manageable way. So I'm going to tell you a little story. Some years ago, almost 20 years ago, I went on a solitary retreat in a cabin in the woods in Northern California, far from what we call civilization. And I planned the retreat as a spiritual exploration. I was fortunate enough to be able to arrange for a whole month in which I had no responsibilities. I took a leave from my job at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and I arranged to go to this place. And all my life, I have been afraid of being alone. I, I live and work and practice with other people in my life. And I'm not actually alone in a literal sense at all much. And, and I'm a person who's happy to have some time by myself and some taught solitude to read or write or take a walk. But the loneliness I'm talking about is a kind of existential feeling that used to really bother me uh, more of a, a fear of being disconnected from other human beings at some really deep level as if I have no self at all, if I'm not being reflected back to myself by other people who are convincing me that yes, I must be here because these other people seem to be seeing me here talking to me, so I must exist, uh, something like that. And I decided I, I just wanted to explore this fear and this, um, what I felt was a, a kind of not quite wholesome need to be constantly reassured by other people. Uh, and I, so I decided to go away for a whole month, not talk to anybody. I didn't see anybody for a whole month. I didn't speak to anybody for a whole month, with one exception, which I'll come to. But, um, and I, I was, you know, it was quite a ambitious thing to do. I mean, how often do you even go through a day without ever seeing another human being? Maybe never, you know, I, I thought about it when I went up there and I thought, well, maybe I never had. So now I was going to do it for a whole month, which I did. Uh, the cabin that I went to had no, um, no electricity, no cell phone access, no Wi-Fi, of course, uh, no, there was a well with cold water coming from a pump into a tap in the cabin, an outhouse, kerosene lanterns for light. 
and it was up on a ridge quite a distance from civilization. It would be a 35 minute drive to the nearest gas station or bottle of milk, or whatever. And I arranged for, I took a bunch of um, beans and rice and onions and potatoes with me and I arranged for a neighbor on the ridge there to drop off a couple of times some fresh food, fresh, fresh produce for me um, outside the cabin twice during my retreat. Uh, and, and once a, every Sunday morning, which was three times, four, three times um, during the month, um, I drove down the road a few miles and then a few more miles on, I drove down a dirt road and I drove along a paved road for about 10 miles to the nearest payphone by the highway. And I called Norman Fisher, my friend and teacher both on Sunday morning by pre-arrangement to just check in with him. That the purpose of this was really for my family's sake and particularly my mother's to make sure I was okay. And um, my mother took a dim view of this project. She was pretty old. This was about, it was only about a year before she died actually. And she thought, well, of course any human being would be lonely if you're there all by yourself for a month. What are you doing that for? And anyway, um, so, and she worried about me. So I wanted her to be able to know that the idea was that she would know that I hadn't been eaten by a mountain lion, at least not since, unless it was since the last phone call with Norman. <laughs> um, so I wasn't dead more than a week anyway. Or I guess Norman would call her right up if I was eaten by a mountain lion. I, I don't know. But anyway. Um, but I was not eaten by a mountain lion, fortunately. So uh, that was the only contact I had. And uh, so it was very challenging. And um, it, was, it was the month of September. It was a beautiful month. I uh, sat on my cushion at the beginning and the end of each day. It wasn't a meditation retreat. I didn't plan to just meditate. Um, I was right. I did writing and reading and went for walks and I did little jobs around the cabin. So sort of, I chopped wood and carried water, literally. And uh, so, uh, and I had no responsibilities. I had I did, left my to-do list behind, so I was not distracted by the kind of tension of oh my god, I forgot to call back the plumber or something. I, I didn't have to worry about anything like that. At the beginning, I was intensely lonely. I mean, to the point of being sort of, what if I lose my mind here? What, it, was, it was very challenging. And I felt kind of untethered in this way as if my consciousness was, had no home. Um, and I thought maybe, I, yeah, I'm right. I don't really exist if there's nobody here to tell me I do or to reflect me back to myself if I'm not in relationship with anybody. Um, so why am I telling you this story and what does it have to do with time? Well, I, one of the things I decided was that I would not take a watch with me. I didn't take any timepiece with me and I wanted to just be in touch with my bodily rhythms and, and my own natural rhythms. And so and that made me much more able to be 
in the present moment, really. I got up when I woke up. I ate when I was hungry. I went to bed when I was tired. At home, I look at my watch a lot. I want to know how much longer it is before the next thing happens. But up there in the cabin, the next thing didn't happen until I started it, until I made it happen. And uh, so, and I could never be late because there was no such thing. I couldn't be early either, although this has not been a problem for me being too early, but being late sometimes <laughs> has been a problem. So that was great. And just everything happened when it happened. And when I, when I, did, when I did something, that's when I was doing it. And I was completely doing it. And I began to find a kind of rhythm. I, when I woke up, the first thing, I had a cup of green tea, which is my favorite thing. That was wonderful. And then I sat on my cushion until the incense stick burned down. And then I, I, I did begin to find this rhythm, and I got into the sort of flow of time there. And there was a wooden post on the porch that was a sort of sundial. I noticed the sun's shadow moving around, and I kind of could guess when it was noon. And, and everything just seemed very, it was very natural. And I made simple, tasty meals there, rice and dal, and, I, and the food took as long as it took to cook. And when it was cooked, I ate it. So, uh, so I was cooking, I was cooking these meals, and I noticed at one point I said, well, I'm cooking all this food and somebody's eating it. Who is that? That's me, I'm eating this food. I'm cooking the food and somebody's eating it who happens to be me. So I guess there is somebody here. There's somebody here and it's me, yay. <laughs> it seemed like a very obvious thing, but it was kind of a revelation to me in a certain way. That, and I would build a fire in the wood stove to keep myself warm. And I thought, okay, I'm a person who needs to eat and I eat my food. I'm a person who needs to stay warm and I, I keep myself warm. And there was something very sort of comfortable and down to earth about that way of being a person there in that place, in that time, in each moment that I was in. And, and then uh, in the evening, I, I would sit down on the cushion just as the sun was about to set. I, I picked that time to sit because that was the time of day when I would always tend to feel the saddest and the loneliest just at sunset. So I would sit then and watch the sun go down and I didn't look at the wall, I looked out at the view and, and then I looked at the, um, I watched the, sh the sun's rays kind of climb up the um, Douglas fir as the sun was going down and jump off into the darkening sky and I watched the sky turn purple. And I, again, I was kind of in this flow of time with the sun and the tree and the sky. And that became very reassuring and comforting. There's a, a phrase from, I've been studying with Everyday Zen, we've been studying the teaching of Hangzhou, the cultivating the empty field. I don't know if any of you have studied this, but I really recommend it. It's very short uh, teaching, translated from 
Chinese by Taigen Leighton, beautiful translation. And it's a wonderful book, Cultivating the Empty Field. And it's from, I think it's the 12th century in China. And his teaching is very reassuring. But anyway, he, he has a line that I, I really like that's a kind of, I'm using it as a little mantra for myself these days. Follow the current and paddle along, naturally unobstructed. And he's saying that we are naturally enlightened already, as Dogen tells us to. We're naturally unobstructed. If we, if we return to our true natures, there's no obstructions. And, and we, paddle, we follow the current and we paddle along. I like that combination of the fact that we're following and we're also active and paddling. So we're making things happen and we're also following what happens in a seamless combination. And, and that's like the river of time or the river of our lives that we're part of. So anyway, I, I, was, I wasn't reading Hangzhou then and I didn't know this sentence, but that was the feeling I had that I was following the current and paddling along naturally unobstructed. And everything around me was kind of calling me into the present moment in a very lively way. Um, so the freshness of the present time, the present moment helped me to wake up to my own aliveness. Also, as you all may have experienced, nature can be very good company when you're a nature and we're, we human beings are natural too, we're part of nature, but beyond human beings, if you don't have other human beings there, nature can be good company. And, and it kept me from feeling alone. Uh, when I was up there, there was the, the woods, the trees, the um, manzanita and the oak trees and the insects, the katydids and the turkey vultures kept me company. And I really felt my connection with, with the beings around me. One late afternoon at the end of the, towards the end of the month, I was taking a walk and I just happened to look up as I heard the wind rustling the leaves of a madrone tree. And I looked up and saw the bright green, shiny leaves kind of glistening and moving in the breeze. And, above the tree, the bright, bright blue, deep blue sky. And all of a sudden I saw in the sky, the gibbous moon was just right there, sort of perfectly floating above the tree. And I saw it and I just involuntarily went, oh, oh, and it was so, Wonderful. It was like, oh, suddenly I knew that the moon had come to say hello to me and say, come on, we're here together. Isn't this great? And it was, I, it was just a very turning moment for me. I felt so greeted by the moon and connected to the universe and thankful to the moon and the tree and the leaves and everything. And it was just one of those moments. It was a, it was a very great present moment. It was a present moment if there ever was one. But now that present moment is in the past. And that's okay too, because you can't 
cling to a present moment. That's what it is. It's, it's only present when it's present. So you certainly can't cling to a past present moment. And there's no need to because fresh moments keep coming along every moment thick and fast. So there's always going to be another one coming. They might not all make you go, oh, thank you. But they keep coming and you keep having that opportunity every moment. It's all about being here in this moment. And waking up is about being alive in this particular moment. And we don't have to get rid of watches to be present in the moment. Of course, we, we need to measure time when we're together. I wasn't with other people, so I didn't have to connect with other people and say, I'll meet you at a certain time. But when we're doing things together, particularly here, of course, we have to come at seven o'clock. I'll see you there. So we need our watches. But this doesn't mean that where our schedules are not imprisoning time or caging time. We're just using these words like seven o'clock. It's is just a, a communication tool to keep us together so we can do things together and enjoy the present moment with each other. And, and so we're not doing anything to time. We're just flowing along and paddling along together and we need some signals so that we can match up and do it at the same time. And that's a different way of thinking about hours and minutes and seconds than the way we do get, we can kind of get trapped into really thinking, okay, time is money, this, I have to save this time, I have to, and, and our society makes us do that too, because we do have to think of time in those very practical and kind of economical ways. And we have jobs, we have to get to the work on time, we have to work a certain number of hours to make the money we need or whatever. So that is a reality. But I think there are ways that we can keep that from taking over our whole experience of our aliveness in each moment and to remember that the time that there's a deep time that's deeper than this linear time of measuring and measuring and counting out seconds or counting out dollars or counting things out in a way that is kind of like a cage that we're putting around time or and that in that way putting it around our own lives so to try and keep on thinking of it as just the tools that we need to live our lives deeply and fully. Um, and maybe in the days of hunter-gatherers, they didn't have to think of time this way. They could just also be more in the present moment. But we've come a while away since then, and we can't just wait quietly for the prey to come or wait till the berries are ripe and then go take however long we need to pick all the berries we can. That's not how we live anymore. But we can still keep that in our hearts, this idea of being present with what's going on. The time, the lengths of time are so, there's another thing that's so mysterious about time, is that it's so long or and it's so short. And the Recently, there was this during this past year, astrophysicists were able to 
see almost all the way back to the Big Bang. I don't know if you remember the news came out that they said, well, we know now that the Big Bang, when the universe began, happened about 13.8 billion years ago. Now, how do they know that? I don't know. And it sounds so very particular amount of time. They, they say about 13.8 billion years ago. Well, um, so that's a long time. And at the same time, scientists are also, there are scientists who are really exploring very tiny, tiny segments of time and the human brain and the sort of psychology, psych not psychology, but neurology maybe of how we experience time and that we can, that the brain, the human brain, I read somewhere, the human brain can experience seven instants of time in one second. Um, so like seven nows in a second. We can experience that. We can't really verbalize it maybe, but although I, I've been practicing this and experimenting and now I'm going to give you seven nows in a second. No, 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 no. That was seven nows and it takes about one second to say seven, to say now seven times. I was actually talking about this when I was at this Spanish, this session in Mexico where, and I was talking, some of the things I'm saying tonight, I was talking about there and, and what I was saying was translated into Spanish and the translator went, ahora, ahora, ahora. <laughs> anyway, you can't, ahora, or is the Spanish word for now. And she couldn't say seven ahoras in a second. <laughs> but anyway, um, so this, if you speak Spanish, you only get about three or four <laughs> nows in a second. But um, also it's, I read that our visual brain can process 30 visual frames in a second. We can, or we can see and distinguish 30 frames in a second. In other words, if we, that's why movies have to go a certain speed before, if they go fast enough, we don't see any flickering. But if they go slow enough, then our eye actually sees them as separate frames. So, um, but somebody, a filmmaker was telling me that uh, TV, I don't know, TV has like almost 30 frames a second, but some films have 24 frames a second or something. And that they look a little, they look a little different they look to the, our brain experiences them a little differently. Anyway, how is it that there can be these tiny, these tiny little bits of time, and then this 14.8 billion years of time in the universe, and, and yet it's all relative. And at some level, I also feel like these nanoseconds are the same as the 14 years, 13 billion years of the universe, 13.8, 14 billion years. Um, or to think of it another way, maybe, you know, well, maybe our universe is a nanosecond in some other universe, in the, some bigger universe. Maybe a gnat's life, which lasts about a week, is as long to a gnat as our life is to us. Um, because time is so 
plastic. And I think we've all experienced the way that in one in a particular short moment, you can have an experience sometimes that seems to last a really long time. There can be a sudden opening into a kind of deep time in a very brief moment. So there's a lot we don't know or understand about time, but we do know that it's our life, that it's what we're living in, and that we um, that we don't grab it. We can't grab it, and we can just kind of give ourselves over to it, or it can give itself over to us, uh, and we can be as present as possible. So I want to do a, an experiment with you. I want to watch time pass with you and to convince you that we have all the time in the world. And the way I want to do this, oh, I forgot to ask, is there, is there a little bell that I could use? Or is that the littlest bell we have? Do you have a little one? Is it far away? Okay. <laughs> the 30 seconds is good. Let's. <laughs> 30 times 7, what's that? 20, what? 210 nows till he comes back with the bell. Thank you, Barry. Okay, it's funny that you said 30 seconds because what I want to do is sit. We're going to sit for 30 seconds. And I'm going to ring the bell at the beginning and at the end. And I want to just ask you, let's all of us together for this 30 seconds, see if we can be present, ex experience each moment in the 30 seconds as best we can. This is what we're trying to do anyway, in a way, when we're sitting sasana, but really concentrate on, well, what is it like? Are, can we see the time passing? Can you feel it passing? And some, now, there's, it's very quiet in here. There's a sort of hum of the air conditioning system or something I can hear. But there's, no, there's actually no sound I can hear that helps me. Sometimes you, if you hear waves or a stream or the wind blowing, those sounds happen in time. And those are kind of your a clue that time is passing and you can kind of listen to them like you're listening to time passing. But we don't have sounds that I can hear right now. But you can do that with your breath also, that just your breath itself is proof that time is passing and you can kind of listen to your breath or feel your breath as if you're living in the time that's passing. But however you experience it doesn't matter. I'm just going to ring the bell and we're going to pay attention to 30 seconds. And there's no right or wrong way to do this, obviously. So let's just see what it's like.
So how did that seem? Was it long? Was it short? Can you say? It's kind of a lot fits in there somehow. So now we're going to try it again. This time, 10 seconds. See, see if this is different. See if it's shorter. Maybe it'll seem longer. Who knows? kind of nice. There's something nice about these little little windows of silence. And you know if you're if you're talking or if you're in the kitchen going to get something or and you do something that maybe you go get something out of a drawer and you go put it somewhere else and it takes 30 seconds. Just it's no time at all. It's just all of a sudden that's gone. But if you're sitting there for 30 seconds, it's kind of a long time in a certain way. So when you think about that 30 seconds, or even that 10 seconds, in a, in a day, I forget, I did the arithmetic and now I've forgotten it, but you know, maybe there's 4,000 30 second zazen periods in a day, something like that. If 30 seconds was a period of zazen, we'd have thousands of them in a day. So that's a long time. And we have a lot of days. Um, so we're having the time of our life. And we get to be here each moment. And we're made out of time and, and ourselves are made out of this time. And we, we get to alive in it. So we're having the time of our lives. So I want it. That's my that's my talk on time. But I think I have time, as the saying goes, to uh, I'm going to just read a very short excerpt from my book, Alive Until You're Dead, just to give you a little taste of it. And uh, it's, a, it's a collection of essays, personal essays, uh, drawing on my own experience about being mortal. Uh, I've written about aging. This is somewhat about aging, but it's more than that. It's more about being mortal and how does our awareness of the fact that we're going to die change our lives and how does it enrich our lives and how does our mortality itself help us to be grateful for this precious human birth and and how can we contemplate our death in a positive way that um, helps us not to be afraid of death and to accept our, our lifespan, whatever it may be. So uh, there's, I don't know, there's 19 or 20 chapters in here and they touch on different aspects of these subjects. But I think I will read uh, just a very short bit from the last chapter, 
which is called Meeting the Final Deadline. We humans could be the only species who are lucky enough to know we are going to die. I say lucky because this knowledge makes life shine. A sign I made hangs over my desk. Don't think for a moment you're not going to die. Does this seem weird to you? Every time I happen to notice it, I wake up for a minute. I remember not only my approaching death, but the happy corollary. I'm not dead yet, I'm alive. I used to be afraid of death, now not so much. It's partly a side effect of getting old. Old people in general are, by their own reports, less afraid of death than young people. We have less to lose, and some of us are getting tired. As our aches and pains get worse, we may even look to death as a safe form of pain management. At 16, I was old enough to drive. As a septuagenarian, now an octogenarian, I'm old enough to die. I don't want to die right now, but it wouldn't be a tragedy if I did. I've had a long turn on the swing. A lot of people I know have already done it. And even though I don't exactly expect to see them again, I'll be expressing my solidarity with them when I go. If you can do it, Mary, Friedel, Molly, I can do it too. Dying is becoming a companionable thing to do. Apparently, all human beings know how to die. I find it reassuring that everybody who's gone before me has managed it, and I trust that I'll be able to do it too. Still, I fear the pain of leaving, of being parted from loved ones. No way that's going to be easy, but if along the way I keep on telling people I love them and acting accordingly, this will make parting easier. I fear that I won't be ready. I fear dying too soon before I've finished the sorting, and more importantly, before I've let go of all my lingering fears and regrets before I understand that the life I've led has been just right, sorrows and all. I'm studying death and practicing getting ready in various ways. Day by day, I'm getting closer to accepting. Worst case scenario, at the end I'll just say, here I come, ready or not. Anne Aiken was a 20th century Zen practitioner and the wife of the Zen teacher, Robert Aiken. She was a student of Master Yamada Cohen. One day he asked her, what do you think of death? She replied, why, it's like when a bus stops before you, you get on and go. I want to be like her. I want to be able to accept my death before I die. There are lots of Zen stories about the great matter of birth and death. And I'm reassured that the old Zen masters considered death an urgent matter, urgent and unknowable. Not knowing is highly valued in Zen. The, possible, the, the possibly apocryphal story goes that a samurai asked the 18th century Zen master Hakuin, where will you go after you die? Hakuin, how am I supposed to know? Samurai, you're a Zen master. Hakuin, yes, but not a dead one. <laughs> the more I consider death, approaching it from different angles, the more I realize that I can't know what it is. And the more this not knowing becomes familiar, the less afraid I am. 
There is no old age and death, and also no extinction of old age and death. Befriending my mortality is a work in progress, and it won't be done until I die, of course. Every morning, I light a candle and a stick of incense, and I sit down on my cushion. I say, I vow to be grateful for this precious human birth. I say, I vow to be present. This is it. The more I explore death, the more life shines, the brightness of it, alive. Okay, so I think I'll stop there, and maybe we can take a few comments. I'm sorry I've gone on for a while here, but um, we have time for, if anybody wants to make a comment or have a question, or, yes, Jim. Oh. Uh, I was out to, uh, actually Karen and I were out at a, a wildlife refuge in, um, recently and we saw a, a goose with a badly broken wing. Mm. And uh, it's just, your talk, you know, s- somehow brought that, that memory of seeing that goose, you know, and, and of course, you know, on the human side, we feel like, like you just reacted like, oh, you know, just like that, you know. Yeah, but I, I just your talk made me think. Oh, the goose isn't isn't doing that. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. the goose isn't going. Uh, the yeah. goose is just uh, being a goose with a broken wing and uh, doing, you know, s- swimming off. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, we, you know, we are. We are enslaved by our ideas of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the things that I, I was, you know, occurring to me, like time on my hands, or yeah, that, that yeah. kind of that kind of uh, time is dragging. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of feeling rel- relative to time, and you know, it's, I guess it's just good to remember that not, you know, we can learn from other beings yeah. that aren't aren't yeah. bound by that. You know that. That don't don't experience the world that way yeah. or their own bodies that way. Yeah, it's not really yeah, a question. Thank you for that. That's really, <laughs> that's helpful. Well, as I said, we might be the only species that know we're going to die, and that is a plus in the sense. I was thinking of it as a as a positive thing, but it can also be. A negative thing that the fear and the and the anticipation and the looking forward into the future can take us out of just being a goose with a broken wing or whatever is happening right now. That the goose isn't presumably worrying about whether he's going to have to have surgery or not for the wing or whatever. He's just dealing with what's happening in the moment. Yes. Susan, I want to know how you knew that it was Sunday and time for the phone call. Oh, well, I, I could keep track of the days. That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think I kept a journal. I was writing down things that happened each day. And I, I was kind of wondering that, too, as I, was, as I was thinking about this talk. I was trying to remember 
did I think, oh my God, wait, did I miss a day? Because I do that now, even when I have all kinds of ways, I can check my phone and see what day it is, but I, I forget unless I do check. So I guess my memory was better. <laughs> I don't know. Good question. I wasn't paying a lot of attention to the day of the week, but I could keep track of it. Yes. You're, um, <clears throat> when you were talking about um, someone's making the food and then someone's eating it, yeah. you know, it made me think of an experience I had recently um, working on this big research project and um, about a year and a half ago, or maybe it was two years ago, I did a huge push of research. You know, I had about 100 pages of notes. And uh, I recently kind of envisioned it differently. So I had a new structure, so I had to cut and paste the notes from the old one, structure to the new ones. But it was so, it was, you know, I think I'm getting older, my memories get worse too. There's a lot of it that I couldn't remember doing. Wow. And I really had the sense of like, it was so nice of this person to have organized these notes yeah, for me. Yeah. I mean, it really, like, it really felt that way. And it, I'm not sure I could fully articulate like what I got out of it, but it like it really like kind of isolated the sense of self a little bit. Like you know, that wasn't me; that was someone else yeah. that did it for me. And it, yeah. was, it was a very weird phenomenon. But I, like I felt really like warm towards that person. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. really that's great. That's really nice. I like that story a lot. Yeah, yeah. I've actually had an experience sort of like that when I looked at my first book that was published. In 1988, uh, The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi, which is a humor book. And I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> I was reading the God, who thought of that pun, you know? Um, but this feeling that, yeah, you can be, the one person is, that's not quite what you were, your point, but that you can feel warmly towards the person who, used to be you and and that you can take care you can take care of yourself when we say take care of yourself that really means something you really can take care of yourself as a as if you're a person taking care of a person you love you know just as you do about other people when you love them Terrible. I don't know if I can articulate this very well, but I was thinking you didn't use the word timeless, timeless. Yeah. And it seems like uh, there are moments when I'm wholeheartedly just being in an activity, and it's as if there is no time, really. It's it's just being. Yes. But it's being, but it's not just being passive. It's being wholeheartedly alive. Maybe that's the way yes. to say it. Mm -hmm. I completely, I think that's very true, and I'm glad you brought that out. And I, I could have used the word timeless if I, because a lot, the kind of time I was talking about with these moments of, like the moment of seeing the moon, um, those are timeless moments where you're not in time. And also whenever you're doing something, it doesn't, it can be longer than a moment. You know, if you're doing something that takes full concentration or if you're playing music with other people or something like that, you aren't really in time anymore. 
even though, of course, music is something that definitely happens in time with a rhythm and everything, and maybe it even it's in three, four time or four, four time. But no, but when you're doing something so wholeheartedly, you're not, you're free from time in a certain way. That's very liberating. I know we're, we have, we really need to stop. I, I was wondering if I could see if there was one person online who might want to say something, but. Anyone on Zoom want to speak? Looks like nobody needs to say anything. <laughs> so I think we should stop and say good night. Thank you very much.